Hey guys, no fancy introduction this week. It's just John dropping in to say hello and to tell you that our music this week is by Audionautics.com. It's the theme that we've been running for a significant chunk of this podcast and really enjoying. But Brian is bringing you a fantastic conversation today with the one and only Jesse Zink, and they are talking about all things South Sudan and a variety of different topics related to the culture and Christianity, and it's really just a fascinating and I think uplifting conversation. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Logosis. This is Brian, and while John and Sarah are moving and Garrett is traveling, it is just me today, so you are in for a treat. It is all Brian, all the time. And today I have Jesse Zink, who with us, and he is the canon theologian of Montreal. So Jesse, how are you? Doing well, and thank you for uh, having me on today. So Jesse, what has brought you to this place in your journey? Yeah, it's a good question. So I grew up in the church. I'm a, I'm a cradle Anglican. I was born in Canada, but raised in the United States in the Episcopal Church. And so church has always been a part of my life and, and a big part of my life. But like many people, it, it takes time to make it your own. And, and part of the making it my own process was related to my my interest in in the world, interested in in what happens beyond the country where where I grew up and where I lived. So when I was an undergraduate, I studied uh, political science with a focus on international relations and did a master's degree in international relations, actually, thinking at that time, you know, that there was some real interest here in in being involved in in the work of I wasn't really sure at the time, actually. It was it was hard to put a finger on it, but I knew I was interested in thinking about how the world works as a whole. But I decided, actually, after that graduate degree in international relations, that, you know, I needed a little break from school and that this kind of work, which was sort of pushing people in the direction of diplomacy, wasn't really what I was looking for at the time. And so I spent some time doing some other things. I worked at a radio station in Alaska as a news reporter for a while. And then I lived in South Africa and worked for a church-based ministry in South Africa for a couple of years as well. And those experiences helped me see to, to really be introduced to people's lives at a local level in some really different contexts around the world. In, in Alaska, I was living in a pretty rural part of Alaska where Alaska natives are a majority in the population. And then living in South Africa, I was living in a place where, you know, pe- people spoke, spoke English, but English was definitely a second or third or fourth language there. So I was being exposed to lots of cultural and linguistic difference, also being exposed to some different parts of the world. And, and that experience helped me really develop a clear sense of calling, we, we would now say, in, in the life of the church. We'd use the language of calling that the language of building bridges between cultures, of bringing people together, was really what I was was interested in, and doing that in the context of, of the church. And so it was that that sent me on the pathway to uh, ordination, and, and uh, off I went. And so I was ordained in the Episcopal Church in the United States. And like with many people's life stories, you can look backwards and see how God was building up different experiences in your life to to bring you to a particular point. And so some of the threads I would highlight are a gift of education and teaching and wanting to be involved in, in sharing people's stories and helping them tell each other's stories. That's what I was doing when I was a news reporter in Alaska. 
And another thing was really engaging with cultural difference, thinking about what it looks like to be in, in a different culture and how the culture shapes that place. And then the third piece of it is to wrap all of this up in the Christian gospel and the life of the church. And so the question that has really driven me, I would say vocationally, is something like this. It is a fact that uh, today in the world where we live, there are Christians all over the world in so many different cultures and contexts and language groups, south of the equator, north of the equator. Those of us who have experience of church in North America might be familiar with the story of decline, uh, declining attendance, declining fi finances, declining numbers of congregations or, or whatever. But in fact, when you look at the global Christian story, it's a story, it's a much more complicated story. And the story of decline is not the only story to tell. And so I, the, the, the question that drives me then is, given this, given this worldwide body of Christ, what does it mean that Jesus prays for unity among his followers? How are we called to be in relationship with one another? And I have this real sense that as Christians, um, we have this opportunity to witness to the world in terms of the quality of relationships that we have with one another. I have this sense that the world that we live in is, is a global world, right? Like you and I are, are talking here on this podcast from different points on the North American continent. We're using technology that was you know, probably designed in California. I don't know what 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 kind of technology you have in front of you, but I can see what what you've got in your ears. So I'm guessing they were designed in California, but probably manufactured in uh, China using equipment that comes from many different parts of the world, right? Can tell the same story about the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the gas we put in our cars, the cars themselves, right? So we live in this world of global relationships, but we also know that that world of global relationships is some distance, shall we say, from the kind of wholeness and fullness of relationship that God calls God's people to. Oh, absolutely. And so, right. Okay. I, I think we're, we're kind of like in agreement there. And I, I would say that I, I believe in the core of my being that Christians have this ability to witness to a different kind of relationship, to, to be people whom the world recognizes as followers of Jesus because of the love we have one for the other, who in our our oneness, that, that they may all be one, as Jesus prays in John 17, so that the world may believe. Now, I also want to say that I think that's an opportunity that Christians around the world are singularly failing to grasp at this moment, often for, for oh, good reason. Absolutely. Right? But I think the potential is still there. And so I would say that's the question that drives me vocationally. What does it mean to be Christians as part of a global body of Christ in a divided global world? How can we witness as Christians through our relationships with one another? And so in one way or another, I would say that's a kind of through thread for me vocationally in the last uh, number of years. I discerned a, as well that a, a real place in which some of this work can be done is in the work of theological education, which I think is uh, of vital importance. And so, and I had this real call to continue to tell other people's stories. And so I did a doctorate where I, I focused on the church in uh, South Sudan, and we can say more about that in a little while, and then transitioned after that into work in theological education. And so I now live in, as you say, in Montreal, where I'm the principal of one of uh, the Anglican Church of Canada's uh, seminaries, Montreal Diocesan Theological College, often called simply DIO. And it's in this place that I'm thinking about some of those same questions and trying to create a student body and a student community 
that is intentional about how we embrace and engage with forms of difference and how we learn from one another about how the Christian gospel is expressed in our particular cultural contexts and how together we are part of one church expressed in many different ways. And I, I think that is so, uh, sometimes I think American Christians in particular, which I'm, assu- I, let me, I'm making an assumption that most of our audience is American Christians. They're all probably Methodist American Christians at that point because we're the four host or four Methodist pastors, all actually from like the South in the United States. But I can remember one of my fraternity brothers in college, he was an international studies major. And his first job was actually, he got a job with the Lego company. Um, And he described his job to me as my job is to explain Americans to a non-American company. So because just because you have something has a label doesn't mean we understand what that label means. So just because something is Christian, like we have to recognize that that could be vastly different culturally due to other factors just beyond the fact that we are Christian. So that unity question that you have is really important for us to consider. You see that as well. I mean, it doesn't have to just be the label Christian. It could be the label Methodist, right? You would know sure. this better than me, right? But even within the United Methodist Church, you know, I, I'm not as up to speed on all the developments as, as you would be, but we see real challenges within the United Methodist Church about what it means to be Methodist in relationship with one another from different cultural national backgrounds as well. You know, in my own Anglican tradition, we encounter this in relation to the the global Anglican communion. I don't want to say that any of this is easy by by any means. And I certainly haven't found like the magic bullet. Uh, That's probably the wrong expression. But, you know, I I haven't found the way that's going to, you know, make us snap our fingers and all all of a sudden uh, all get along together and sing Kumbaya. And, And I actually don't think that's what Christian unity is about. But I do often go back to to St. Paul in Corinthians uh, saying, in 1 Corinthians 12, saying, essentially, the one thing we can't say to one another is, I have no need of you. And let me tell you, there are many times in my life when I have met other people and other followers of Jesus who I recognize as followers of Jesus and find myself saying, gosh, I have no need of you. And as soon as I think that, I, I, I find myself convicted of, of, of my sin. And I go back to that 1 Corinthians and, you know, the, the logic of the body of Christ that Paul lays out is that in the body of Christ, we are all giving to the body and we are all receiving from the body as well. And sometimes I know what I want to give, you know, oftentimes when it comes to other Christians, I just want to give them a piece of my mind. Sometimes, you know, I want to give them education or something or a sermon. But it's a lot harder sometimes for me to ask the question, what is it that I have to receive from these other Christians in this situation? And yet it seems to me that the logic of the body of Christ, as the New Testament teaches it, is that we need to be continually asking both of those questions. What do I have to give and what do I have to receive? Even as that second question sometimes can be so challenging in relation to Christians who seem so different from me. And it might even be that, am I willing to receive it? And that's going to be a tough question that I'm going to ponder the rest of the day. There has to be a kind of spirituality of living in the church, which is a spirituality that says, I want to continually be releasing my gifts for the good of the whole, which like, let's not minimize that. That's pretty tricky and challenging. I want to continually be releasing my gifts for the good of the whole. And I want to continually be receiving the gifts other people have to offer. And 
easy to sit here and say that, a lot harder to put into the practice. Oh, absolutely. So moving like kind of further into our topic, although I feel like we could just talk about that like all day, you've written your dissertation on events happening with Christ- uh, the Christian relationships like or Christian events in South Sudan, right? Or Christian phenomena in like mm-hmm. South Sudan. So can you just, it's not fair to ask someone to describe their entire dissertation in like several sentences, but can you like just kind of briefly describe like what is happening in Sudan and how are Christians a part of that? And what is the relevance to Christianity in that? So there's a backstory and there's a a current story as well. And I should just say that I I did reference a dissertation, but uh, got totally revised and turned into a a book, which... uh, was designed to be accessible to to non-academics called Christianity and Catastrophe in South Sudan. So Sudan, big country, uh, used to be one of Africa's largest countries, uh, sort of in uh, northeast Africa. Egypt borders it on the north, uh, Uganda on the south, Kenya, a variety of other countries in uh, there. Sudan appears in the Bible uh, as well, actually, to go way back in time. In the Hebrew Bible, there's the Hebrew word kush, which sort of means like that place like way over there beyond Egypt, but it's translated in in many Bibles, including the New Revised Standard Version, which I read as Sudan. And Sudan, well, has has a very rich history. And I'm particularly interested in uh, South Sudan, which since 2011 has been an independent country. Sudan was part of the British Empire, And Christian missionaries, Anglican missionaries, were active in southern Sudan, uh, really in the first half of the 20th century. And the British government sent them to to southern Sudan, and they worked. There's a lot of different uh, ethnic diversity in southern Sudan, Um, and I'm particularly interested in the Dinka people. Perhaps some listeners uh, to this podcast will have uh, met a Dinka person. About 20 years ago, um, the United States resettled many uh, young Dinka refugees in the United States under the title The Lost Boys of Sudan. Many of them, the majority of those people were Dinka. Some were from some other backgrounds as well. The Lost Boys of South Sudan were people who'd been displaced from their homes during a civil war in Sudan in the 1980s and 1990s, which was actually Sudan's second civil war. There was an earlier one in the 60s and 70s. The backstory on on the story I'm trying to tell, uh, British missionaries did not have a lot of success with uh, the Dinka people. The language they used is that the Dinka were resistant to the gospel. And by the time that missionaries left in the 1950s, uh, there was a very small and struggling Dinka church. By and large, the Dinka people uh, had an indigenous religion which centered on a single high god known as Nyalich and a series of intermediary deities known as Jack. What happened is that in the middle of Sudan's civil war in the 1980s and 1990s, a war that was particularly devastating for the pl- parts of the uh, country where Dinka people lived, Dinka turned en masse to Christianity, to Anglican uh, forms of Christianity, also to Roman Catholic forms of Christianity. And so the 1980s and the 1990s saw a widespread movement of religious change, such that to go to South Sudan today, and especially to be in the Anglican Church of South Sudan, is to be in the midst of a thriving and very large and very growing Dinka church. 50, 70 years ago, when European missionaries left the country. There's a very small Dinka church. They left. Civil war happened, and now there's this church. And so my book is an investigation of why it is that that would happen. 
And there's a lot of different answers to that question, but but that in a sense is the question that I was seeking to solve. A couple other interesting things that that really connected me to this is that in that movement of religious change, there were a couple key factors. One was the role of women. Uh, women were uh, really at the forefront of this movement of religious change, emerging as evangelists and church planters, even though many of them couldn't read, couldn't write. That's one aspect of it. The other is the role of young people. So the lost boys of Sudan, uh, the kind of cohort that they represent of young, unattached people, they were also among a group of people who were joining the church. Several more things, but just one thing to say here before pausing for a moment is the role of music is that the religious change movement brought with it a huge outpouring of Dinka-composed Christian hymns. Missionaries had left behind some translated versions of kind of some classic evangelical hymns, which you, you and I could probably list, but it was during the Civil War that Dinka people, many women, began to write their own hymns expressing theological truths as they understood them. Those songs then became a key form of catechesis, a key tool of uh, conversion as well, and they continue to be sung in churches today. So that's the kind of religious backstory there. I can say more about the political story, but I, I see you uh, making a move there. Well, I, I'm sure we'll get to the political part because I just don't think you can tell the whole story without that part. But it is always interesting to me that Christian movements tend to begin on the margins. Mm -hmm. it, it begins with women and young people and things like that. It doesn't happen from the top down. Like that's just not how it works. And maybe that's going back to when Jesus first said, like the good news is for the poor, right? Mm -hmm. the, the good news is for the have nots. Uh, those who are thought less of, but I, the music part of it is fascinating. Um, so let me let me let me let me just say uh, a brief story about music, and because I think it raises an interesting question that that I continue to think about, I haven't really uh, answered. So the the part of South Sudan where Dinka people live, anthropologists would say Dinka people don't have a lot of material culture, i.e., they don't go around, you know. Um, making pottery, or they don't go around, you know, carving wood a, a little bit. Uh, you know, th there's not a lot of artwork. Or, and that's because the part of the world where they live is the Nile floodplain. So what there is, is there's there's a lot of tall grass to graze cattle. There's a lot of mud. When, when it floods, there's a lot of water, but there's not a lot of things to build stuff with. So Dinka culture has always really prized music. It's real like oral culture here. And so back in the day, if you were a young Dinka man growing up in a cattle camp, you would sit around and amuse yourself during the day by writing songs about your girlfriend, about the wrestling match that you just had, what a great wrestler you were, about your cow and how great your cow was. So music was, was always part of this. What happened is that when Christianity began answering some of the questions that people found themselves asking in the middle of the Civil War, well, how do you express those answers that you're finding in Christianity? The natural thing to do is to write music about it. And, and actually, and as I said, it's it's women who were taking a leading role in this. I I went through the one of the things I did in my dissertation was go through the index of the Dinka hymnal produced after the Civil War by composer. You know, and I've, I don't have the statistics to hand, but but just an a, immense number of those hymns were composed by women, and far more than would have been expected in the absence of of Christianity. And so, so songs become the way of expressing. Uh, Christian truths. And what's so interesting to me is that 
you have a cultural product, music, songs, which is, is deeply rooted in Dinka culture. And then Christianity comes in and the Christian gospel becomes expressed through that cultural product, through an existing cultural product that already exists, right? It's not like, I mean, they had translated Bibles, but actually not a lot of them. It was, it was these songs that became such a key form of transmitting the gospel. So the question I have is that when you think about other cultures around the world, say like our own kind of North American Western capitalist culture, what is the, what is the cultural product that we have right now through which the Christian gospel message can be expressed. Because maybe it's not the sermon any longer. That's the way to do it. <laughs> that is a huge, that is a huge statement that, that was just made. And it's probably right. Um, <laughs> but but I'm I I I'm just I, I think the interesting thing that it raises for me is how do we communicate in our culture, right? Like what are the communication practices in our culture? And how do we put the message, the Christian truths into those existing practices. Maybe it was, you know, a kind of homily uh, at one point, and maybe it still is, right? Like for some, I love sermons. I love listening to them, right? But not for everybody. So what is that cultural product? Well, this, and, and, this? and this is not in our topic, but kind of in broader Christian history too, like as communication tools change within cultures, that's how the gospel spread. So you think about Luther and the printing press, and then we can think about radio and things like, like that. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Television, the whole televangelist. I mean, back at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century newsletters and the postal service was like a huge way of spreading the message, right? Yeah. So all of that is, uh, I, I mean, th that's precisely uh, the question. I think the Sudanese example, the Dinka example, just presents it in such clear terms for me to, to think about. Maybe I have to break down and get Snapchat after all. Like, yeah, may, may, okay. maybe so. I, I mean, I don't even know what TikTok is, but I know people, I, yeah. you know, who use it as as a tool for their church ministry. And I say more power to you. And so, so these songs of the Dinka like help transmit the gospel in in their own language because that's clearly yeah. a part of this too. Because we also can't really deny that a lot of our Christian language is European in origin. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it, it, the way we talk about theology. Mm -hmm. I mean, to this day, like, is European in origin. So mm -hmm. putting it in their own language has got to be a, a key to get them to understand. Or, yeah, so or, own language, uh, own imagery. You know, one of the, you, you know, one of the things that makes me, uh, made me, I guess, uncomfortable in doing my, my research is that, you know, some of the language in these hymns is, is this idea that the Civil War was God's punishment on the Dinka people for not obeying God, and that people could come to be, if people came to be Christian, that would make the war end, basically. I mean, interestingly, a lot of this depends on a translation oh. of chapter oh. 18 of the prophet Isaiah, which is a prophecy about Cush, about Sudan. And so people read that chapter as a prophecy applicable to their own time. And I'll say, I find some of that, that theology discomforting, uh, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily where I find myself. As part of my research, however, I interviewed uh, a woman named, her nickname was uh, Nongdi, but Mary Alwil Gorang uh, was a woman who wrote many of these hymns as, as a young woman in society. And she's, she's still living today. And I interviewed her and I said, you know, some of this imagery, like I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with it, right? As, as if somehow my discomfort should be an issue for her. But and anyway, but her response, I remember her response is, well, if you look at the book of Hosea, you know, 
some of that same language is being used to describe God. And again, just like leaving aside an evaluation of this kind of theology and, and where it comes from, I found myself in that moment really confronted by here's someone who is reading the Bible, uh, reading the Bible faithfully and hearing it speak to them in their own context where they are. I find myself disagreeing with it, but I can't deny the integrity of what's happening here or just the, sh the way in, rep in which this, what she's doing represents the sheer diversity of, of the Christian movement uh, around the world. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, having done some intense study of the prophets like myself, I had a hard time getting my congregation and my people who were taking a lot of class for like multiple years mm -hmm. on the major and minor prophets. It was really hard for them to understand kind of language. And I had to keep coming back to like, you have to get out of like this American image of the world because it doesn't exist everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Like, and so we have to face some harsher realities in some way to really understand why the gospel is good news. Yeah. Like, and if the Bible is written, well, if, if the Bible is good news to the poor, then, then those of us who live in economically comfortable situations shouldn't necessarily think we can understand it uh, as easily as some other people can. I think, you know, I, I think about this in terms of apocalyptic literature as well. And there's an, a, kind of an apocalyptic element, a little bit, to Dinka religion, to, to Dinka Christianity. And I, I go back to the definition of apocalyptic literature, which is that it's literature of the dispossessed. Well, there are many ways you could describe me, but I don't think dispossessed would describe my economic or social situation right now. So I should struggle with some of this stuff. And I should have to be receiving from other people in, in relation to that. That's a great point. So it's probably time in our conversation to shift to what is the catastrophe uh, that's a part of this? Yeah. So the book is called Christianity and Catastrophe in South Sudan. And catastrophe is is actually a translation of a Dinka word, react, which was the word that Dinka people used to describe the civil war. So it's not a word that, that I came up with, although there's a couple ways of translating it, and I translated it in a way that went for alliteration with Christianity. But so Sudan was once a, a united country, a, a very large country divided between north and south. And, and in fact, the north-south division isn't always the most helpful. In a sense, the division in Sudan is always between in between a center in Khartoum and peripheral regions. And Khartoum is always trying to take resources for itself at the expense of peripheral regions. This is true in relation to Darfur. For instance, it's true in relation to the middle part of Sudan, which is actually now the southern part of the country of Sudan, the, the Nuba Mountains. And it's true with South Sudan, the country. It was true during the British colonial period. It's been true since then as well, this center versus periphery. And so Sudan and South Sudan have had two civil wars, one in the, as I say, primarily in the 1960s, and then one in the 1980s and 2000s. Uh, these were devastating, especially the second one, catastrophic experiences, uh, which sent hundreds of thousands of people into exile in neighboring countries, resulted in many deaths through hunger, through war as well. Really whole generations of people were, were shaped by this in traumatic ways. Another part of this story is, is the role of the church. So, so during Sudan's second civil war, and especially in the 1990s, church leaders came together and formed something called the New Sudan Council of Churches, which sought to do a, a number of things. But one of the main things it did was to bring about peace between different factions within southern Sudan because part of the violence during Sudan civil war was not only between North and South, but among Southerners when the rebel movement split in 1991. And so the new Sudan Council of Churches tried to do some work 
at a, a kind of elite level, bringing together leaders of different factions in South Sudan for reconciliation, but ultimately decided that its primary purpose, it would be most useful uh, bringing about reconciliation at a grassroots level uh, of the church. And so in the late 1990s, the New Sudan Council of Churches initiated something called the People to People Peace Process, which went into uh, communities that, that were divided, brought them together, for reconciliation. Um, and it, it's not easy, but to help them see what they had in common. I actually have a, a doctoral student right now who's, who's working on precisely uh, this question, thinking about how that people-to-people -people peace process worked and why it was successful, because it was successful. Ultimately, that grassroots work helped reduce the scope of violence within South Sudan, which then laid the groundwork for a peace process that led to a negotiated peace settlement in 2005. Uh, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. That Comprehensive Peace Agreement allowed for a referendum on South Sudan's independence. Um, and in 2011, January 2011, uh, South Sudanese voted overwhelmingly for independence. And on July 6th, 2011, South Sudan became an independent country. And I was, I was actually there uh, that day, just an incredible moment of emotion for that country. I remember talking to somebody that morning who, who was just in tears thinking about all the people he knew who had not lived to see that day. And, and the next day, uh, the day after Independence Day, there was a service of Thanksgiving in the Anglican Cathedral in Juba, the capital, which I went to. And I just remember, uh, I'll always remember the moment of people singing South Sudan's new national anthem together for the first time, which was a bit rocky because it was new. And so not everyone knew it, but there was great gusto behind it nonetheless. There's, there's a lot of passion, even if we get some of the words yeah, wrong. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or the tune. Tragically, however, I mean, the, the, the tragic part of this story is that in 2013, the leadership of South Sudan again fell into conflict and there's been real sources of division and civil war uh, since 2013. And there, there's been various efforts to, to end that uh, violence. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated story that often seems to, to change. It, it crops up um, in the Western media from time to time, but it, it remains a deeply tragic situation. And well, th there's, there's so much that, that, that could be said about that, but it's, I, I guess the one thing I'll just end on here is, is to say that, that the church continues to be a real force in South Sudan. South Sudan is a, is a deeply underdeveloped country, a country with not a lot of paved roads or stoplights. And the church is sometimes called the largest non-governmental organization uh, in the country. It's a place because it is present in all these communities across the country. Its leaders are respected. And the church is subject to all of the same divisions and discords that are present in society as well. And Christians in South Sudan are just as imperfect as you and me. And so the church is trying to find its way as the country is trying to find its way as well. Well, and maybe that's something that we all have in common. Like we might be facing different issues depending upon our, you know, social and glo literally global location. But just for anybody who's listening, like, the church is the largest agency in the world. Like there's 2 billion of us together. And while we don't always operate very well in unity, there's a real chance for us to have large impacts in our broader cultures and communities. And I, I was looking at some research, uh, research from the Barna group that came out not too long ago, maybe even last week about kind of this post-pandemic like perceptions of the church 
and uh, or the church in the United States. And there is a lower sense of the church and it's than it than there's ever been in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's like 21% of folks who are not Christians think the church offers any positive value at all. And and I bring that up just to say, like, how sad is that? But the it's not that we should just be in denial about that. We have to face the fact that maybe we're not doing our jobs right if people have that perception. Like Maybe we're not li- fully living into this Christian calling that we've all had and received, if that's really people's perceptions. So maybe that's something we need to learn from churches elsewhere where the church isn't having the same issues. I think really one of the most exciting things about being a Christian today is that precisely we live in this global world. You know, I live in Montreal and Montreal is a city that has been transformed by immigration uh, and continues to be. We are a plural city with people from all over the world here. And one of the most exciting things for me to do in Montreal is to encounter Christians from other cultural backgrounds and to say, hey, like I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Who cares about what other people out there think? You know, and in Quebec, we have a there's a very low opinion of church uh, here in Quebec because of our our particular history. And in a sense, it's like, I want to be the body of Christ with you. And and I actually think that's something that people can do wherever you live, because actually the world that we live in today, there is just some real diversity in so many of the communities in in which we live. I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, there are many South Sudanese across the United States uh, in cities and and outside of cities uh, as well. But it doesn't have to be a a South Sudanese person. There are immigrant churches, diaspora churches all over the place. And I'm always asking myself the question, what can I learn from these people? How, how How can I be in relationship with these fellow members of the body of Christ? That relationship may just look like knowing their names or knowing where they meet and and when they worship. It might look like I don't know, having coffee together, when we can all do that again and feel comfortable doing that. It, it might look like praying together or reading the Bible together, but there's, there's just such opportunity to develop that kind of relationship, which I don't think happens in a lot of other parts of society outside the church. And, and I think that's just a great opportunity for us to seize. I think that is both a question and a challenge and a challenge that we should all take part in of how do we go about being in relationships with people who are vastly different from ourselves. And I think the gospel requires nothing less of us to do that. So yeah, I, I think you're right. It it also doesn't require us to to check our own beliefs at the door or to to suppress who we are. We want to bring our whole selves for who we are and who God has created us to be into that encounter. And we want to have that encounter. And you know what? It might not go so well the first couple of times, but God is a God of grace and God's grace transforms. And I continue to believe that that grace can continue to transform relationships because I've seen it happen and I know it will continue to happen. Amen to that. So Jesse, I have one more question for you today. And that is what is bringing you joy right now? Yeah, a lot of things, really. I feel really blessed in that way. But I would say what brings me joy right now actually is my garden here in Montreal. I have a community garden plot and this is getting into the peak time of the year. I spend a lot of evenings uh, uh, down there. And this year I'm I'm experimenting with some new things. I'm growing quinoa for the first time, which which is which is coming up. And I'm I'm trying the the three sisters, which is corn with peas that grow up the corn stalk and squash 
uh, that shade to keep the weeds down. And uh, so far it's working, but I know from experience not to let things, not to get my hopes up, uh, or I, I guess with gardening, it's not over until the harvest happens. So things can still go wrong, but I find a lot of great joy being in the garden, uh, meeting the other people in the community garden plot, and just seeing the miracle of life unfold in so many diverse ways in the garden. Well, that is wonderful. And just uh, another quick aside, when John and Garrett and Sarah and I were all at Candler in Atlanta, one of our favorite spots was called Farm Burger, and they had the best quinoa burger I think I have ever had. Like I, I'm not going to say I preferred it to hamburger, but it was easily like the best second ever. So I might recommend that. I'll see if I can find a recipe if I get some out of my garden this year. Yeah. So, and for me, what is bringing me joy right now is we're actually, so the pastors on my district are doing a shared sermon series to help each other with self-care. I brought this up on the podcast a couple times and we're using those technological resources, not only to share the resources. So like in this next Sunday, one of my friends by the power of technology is preaching in my congregation and I'm excited about that while he is preaching at his own. Like, so I'm pretty excited that we're going to be able to share that kind of ministry together. And we're actually revisiting some of Wesley's like original sermons, kind of like how circuit writers did in America. I'm excited for it, not just because it was my idea, but because it seems to be like helping people and bringing our people together, creating a little bit more unity amongst the people called Methodist in this small part of the world in Norfolk. Um, So uh, that's pretty exciting. Jesse, last thought, if people want to find your book or contact you, what's the best way for them to do those things? So I've, I've written a couple books, including the one on South Sudan. They're all available online through all the usual publishers, all the usual uh, booksellers, and at your local bookstore. I'm on Twitter, at J-A-Zink, Z-I-N-K, or Z-I-N-K, as you might say, south of the border. And I've just started this summer, I'm, I'm experimenting with uh, the newsletter format. So I have I've been writing a summer-only free newsletter on Substack, called Risking Church, riskingchurch.substack.com. You sign up, you get uh, one email a week from me answering the question, okay, it's post-pandemic for some of us in some parts of the world. What's that mean for the church? Uh, What's our future look like? So you can find me there uh, as well. That's great. I'm going to have to take a look into that. And for all of you who are uh, still listening through this part of the podcast, this is our uh, weekly reminder to like, subscribe, share the podcast through whatever uh, podcast listening service you uh, do. You can find more about us at logosish.com and have a great day, everyone.